Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, and here, of course, with none other than Kale Brooks. Kale, how are you? Doing well. Um, I don't know. It's, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling all right. It's another beautiful week. How are you doing, Jen? You know, it's funny. Before we logged on or before we started recording, I was commenting on Kale's Renaissance lighting. Uh, so uh, if, if you like Kale's Renaissance lighting, please hit like and subscribe. Yeah, this is... Um... There's, uh, I already made this joke to Jen, but it's, there's Madonna and Child just out of frame. So this is yeah. the accidental renaissance. Um, this is what you see. G- God is, uh, he's, he's happy with the show lately. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, speaking of the show, uh, I think we have a really good one today for this week. Uh, it's, it's kind of a very special episode, right? Uh, we have, number one, our friend Ben Fong, who uh, I'll be talking to about psychedelics. Uh, but we also have uh, an extra special interview uh, with Noam Chomsky, Vijay Prashad, and our good friend, Ariella Thornhill. Kale, do you want to tell the people what, what's going on? Yeah, well, so uh, Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad just put out a new book titled The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, The Fragility of U.S. Power. It's just kind of classic Noam Chomsky, Vijay Prashad. They're two of our most astute uh, analysts of, of world politics and especially uh, U.S. empire. So um, it's uh, there's a lot going on right now, obviously, especially with China um, and the, the invasion of Ukraine. So um, we try to touch on most of everything in the world in that interview, and hopefully you enjoy it. Stay tuned for that. Um, all right. Well, that that is actually a pretty long interview, so uh, we, we should probably get to the show. But I actually have something that I wanted to bring up uh, before, before all of that. And I'll just say for the audience, uh, I didn't tell Kale about this beforehand, so you're going to be getting his, like, off-the-cuff uh, spur-of-the-moment reactions. But Kale... Uh, just, I was recently, you know, browsing the news as one does, and I kept coming across a trend piece on a, uh, a new Gen Z workplace trend called quiet quitting. So what this is, is, uh, apparently, uh, I'm, I'm going to read a line from Fortune magazine, which, which covered this, uh, trend recently. So they write, You're still performing your duties at work, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life because the reality is it's not. And then the article goes on to say that quiet quitting is part of a spreading trend that's basically telling people to take it easy at work, stop taking on added responsibilities outside of the role's description, or work extra hours. So we'll go ahead and throw up a plethora of headlines here, because this really is something that I've been seeing all over. And I have a few thoughts on this, and then I'm going to get I'm going to get your take as the sort of you know, representative uh, Gen Gen Z spokesperson for this show. So quiet quitting. My thoughts when I first heard about this and read about it was, number one, that um, 
as I think a lot of people who are watching this probably know, like we basically already have a labor term for something sort of similar to this, and that's work to rule. Um, so I was thinking about that. And that, of course, means basically that you really only perform the duties that are explicitly laid out in your contract. Uh, you don't, you know, you leave at five on the dot. You don't do a single thing outside of what you, uh, what is in your job description. And, uh, Work to rule is actually one of my favorite kind of labor actions because it's just an official way of like being a total shit. Uh, but I, I, I do want to say, you know, when it comes to this trend of quiet quitting, something else that occurred to me is that this isn't really work to rule because work to rule is a labor action. It's a labor escalation tactic that takes place within a very specific framework of collective organized labor and collective action, right? And so the main point I wanted to make about uh, quiet quitting, so to speak, is that much like the great resignation that kind of came before, I'm sure you all remember those trend pieces, it could be the case that more Gen Zers or whatever are feeling burned out or like don't want to hustle and grind or whatever and are kind of scaling back in this particular way. But I just think it's worth sort of stating, you know, again, that uh, a lot of people individually doing the same thing is actually not the same thing as collective labor action. A collective labor action is coordinated and organized. Uh, and I, I think the reason why, you know, I felt compelled to say this because of or in, in the context of these spate of trend pieces is because we all remember what the great resignation trend pieces were like. And, and just like, Kale, do you remember how, you know, even people who are labor historians or labor experts being like, is this a general strike? And right, I, I just, right. so I just think it's very important to like spell out the distinction. So that said, um, as our Gen Z spokesperson, uh, please weigh in on quiet quitting. Yeah, this is maybe the first time I've been called the Gen Z spokesperson. I, I'm not sure if I like this responsibility, but um, I guess I'll take it. For uh, today's show. Yeah, just for today's show. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, part of it just, it's kind of sad uh, that it makes sense. Like, it's a very understandable thing that someone who, you know, a middle-class Gen Z person, you know, new to the workforce looking, you know, at job prospects and, and, regular working conditions and reading a piece like this, like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense that it sucks that, you know, it feels like you don't get, uh, like living standards are much lower for middle-class people today than they were even like 20, 30 years ago. Um, so there's like, I think a deep dissatisfaction. There's also a concurrent, there's been, a, I think not universal, but a, a significant kind of trans radical transformation of just kind of culture um, that we've experienced in the last 15 years or so, basically since uh, the financial crash, where um, Gen Zers, like when they do polling, it's like half of all Gen Zers say that they support socialism, like which is higher than any other demographic. Um, there is like this general, even if it's not socialism, there's just a general dissatisfaction with uh, work life and yeah. with kind of capitalist drudgery broadly in like very kind of amorphous whatever terms. And so it's like, it's sad that like the response to that, it, again, understandable that the response mm -hmm. to that is just, um, I don't know, just like see if you can like get by, like kind of avoiding managers looking over your shoulder or, you know, if you're in a cushy, you know, you can work from home, you know, like um, clock in, you know, respond to that one email or two and then kind of just do what you can to get through the day and don't really, mm -hmm. you know, don't do anything more than you need to do. Um and that's all fine, but like the the big upshot is that like 
that doesn't change the situation at all. Right. Like you, right. if that's your plan, if that's your strategy for dealing with the day to day, then that's going to be your strategy every single day for the rest of your working life. Mm-hmm. Because that doesn't actually like, if anything, like there's a higher chance that you'll get fired. And I'm not saying like you should, if you can like work less, work less. Like if you, if you are working too much, like that is a problem. Um, right. But it's not something you can overcome individually in all cases. Sometimes you can very often like, the, the larger trends are only going to be dealt with by structural transformations of things like labor law, of workplace democracy, of like, do you have a union or not? Um, mm-hmm. It's these like the old methods of dealing with work are kind of just the right methods because they're yeah, the ones they're that, tried and true. Yeah. Well, because like all this other like this article, it you know, the advice is something that could have been given 100 years ago, 200 years ago, probably right. was given over and over and over again. And so right. actually, as far as like, which one works better, it's not mm-hmm. that it's it is the like, <laughs> you do need greater collective action and workplace yeah. democracy. Yeah. Um. Obviously, I agree. And once again, like, just want to reiterate, uh, you know, what you said that like, people kind of like pulling back a little at work or, you know, quitting their jobs or whatever, all totally understandable. And, you know, I, I don't think or, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to say or it's very I I don't think it's right to say, you know, to scold people and be like, well, like you should stay in your bad job and like form a union or whatever. That's like a little bit too like that's that's a little too cut and dry. You know, it's not always that easy. But I would just say, you know, for people on the left, for progressives, for commentators or whatever, like I just think it's really important to look at, you know, these trends or whatever as exactly what they are, again, which is individual actions uh, and and to not get overly excited and to be like, this is like some sort of like sign of brewing labor militancy because it's actually the opposite. Right. There's and I think there is a a real place for like just personal advice like that you like people need to figure out how to get by in the day to day. And you're right Mm -hmm. that like it would be wrong for the left to just kind of say, well, shit, sorry, dude, you should be in a union. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, we know, but that's not helpful. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The the big problem is that like, it's not enough just to know that. Like if, if only it was so easy as, as like people saying, oh, wow, I guess I need a union and therefore they get a union. Like obviously you do need to navigate the day to day. And like, there is, you know, again, a, a place for personal responsibility. Like these things are all obviously factors, but the overarching, when it comes to the level of society, why there's like think pieces about like people just are getting burned out. Like, how do you deal with it? Well, actually we need to deal with the burnout and dealing with the burnout and dealing with the the workplace conditions, dealing with the long hours, the, the expectations of you doing 120% uh, and realizing, you know, you can't actually really do it effectively that at, at a level, at a structural systemic level, like you do need a systemic structural political response. You right. do need uh, social democratic labor law. You do need unions. And uh, so, but that's, that's like the strategy for how you have a better situation, a better right. society, but how you actually deal with the situation, like, yeah, you probably should do a little less at work, honestly. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, uh, there you have it from the Gen Z spokesperson of at least today. Um, yeah. Um, what uh, what's uh, what do the what do the teens say today? Um, yeah. Bet. No. Um, what do they say? Uh, I'm so I'm so, I don't. It's not I don't my know generation. The, I don't know the lingo. Period. <laughs>
that's um <laughs> it's all right it's, well it's giving it's giving sanders yeah all right <laughs> well on that note uh let's dive into the rest of the show all right, we're now here with Ben Fong. He teaches at Arizona State University, also the author of the forthcoming book, Drugs in American Capitalism. That will be out from Verso next year. And his most recent piece for Jacobin is The Psychedelic Renaissance is on the Verge of an Uneasy Enlightenment. We're linking that down below. Ben, how are you? It's good to see you. Good. Thanks so much for having me back. So let's just dive right into your article. Uh, you have obviously written about psychedelics for, for Jacobin uh, and sort of, of course, in the context of mental health, right? So thus far, you know, we have quite a few drugs on the market that are used to treat mood disorders. I think SSRIs are sort of the big ones, and they have gotten kind of mixed reviews over the years, as you point out in your article. Um, now, of course, a growing number of mental health professionals are now touting the benefits of certain psychedelics like ketamine, LSD, MDMA. Um, I'm sure everybody has seen the trend pieces about people microdosing acid and so forth. Uh, and uh, something that you know in your article is that, you know, obviously these drugs are all illegal, right? But it does seem like some mental health professionals are sort of convinced that that is going to change very soon. So maybe just to begin, um, maybe give us kind of the lay of the land of psychedelics. Uh, is it really the case that there is, you know, so much scientific evidence for the efficacy of these drugs as kind of, um, uh, you know, mental health, the, the mental health benefits of these drugs that you think that prohibition is going to be sort of overturned in the next couple of years? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess there's two parts to that mm -hmm. question. Like one is about the uh, efficacy of psychedelics and like one is about like the reasons for which uh, prohibition is going to be overturned. So right. just to tackle the first part, um, this actually has a pretty long history. I think that when most people think of psychedelics, they think of the sort of counter-cultural 60s. And, uh, you know, in our cultural memory, that's certainly most prominent, but there was a sort of more underlying tradition, um, you know, starting in, in the 50s and going into the, the 60s until, um, until Prohibition, um, that was interested in those drugs more as um, drugs of therapy. The, the basic idea being that um, LSD, psilocybin, um, mescaline, could lower the boundaries of ego defense and thus um, speed up the, the sort of therapeutic benefits of psychotherapy. Um, there are a lot of people really interested in this research. Um, they were at the time uh, disgusted with a lot of the excesses of the counterculture and really upset when prohibition came. And, you know, some people sort of lamented the fact, some people um, sort of like turned away from psychedelics altogether. There were, um, you know, uh, there was a, a solid band of true believers who uh, kept the, the flame alive over the years. Um, they sort of congealed around an organization called um, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies or MAPS. And MAPS funded, uh, you know, much of the sort of key research that's responsible for the psychedelic renaissance. So they you know, uh, behind the first sort of uh, LSD study in like over 40 years in Switzerland. Um, they were behind much of the psilocybin research uh, for um, depression and anxiety, the MDMA research for PTSD. So they've really been pushing this forward. Um, and so, yeah, it has a long tradition uh, in terms of their efficacy for psychotherapy. Um, there are different modalities within which it's used. So I would say it sort of depends on the modality. Some people sort of just think of it as like a, 
you know, like a pill you take every once in a while or, a, mm -hmm. or an infusion or a treatment that you do every once in a while. Some people much more explicitly tie it to the process of psychotherapy. So it's less about the drug and it's more about the talking that is curative. Mm -hmm. So it depends on what modality you're talking about. That all being said, to now get to the second part of your question, I don't think that the reason that um, these things are going to be legal soon, and I do think that they will be legal, has anything really to do with their curative potential. I think it has much more to do with addressing a severe mental health crisis at a moment when most of the institutions that would be able to deal with it are, are pretty broken. So mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of psychedelic enthusiasts who think that this is our chance to not only transform mental health care, but to transform society in the process. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I talk about some of those sort of, um, you know, self-proclaimed psychonauts in the article. And I think that they are, um, you know, perfectly legitimate in thinking that these drugs bear uh, real, real potential for transforming mental health care. Um, I think the reason that psychedelics are going to be legal, however, is simply that there are enough um, very wealthy investors and enough very large corporations that mm -hmm. are interested in capitalizing on the current crisis uh, with with better drugs. And so yeah. in the article, I talk about them sort of being like, you know, Medicare Part C plans or Medicare right. Advantage plans, right? It's just like it's a it's a business opportunity embedded within a failing public system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, maybe talk a little bit a more a little bit more about that. Like, how does the psychedelic renaissance, so to speak, kind of fit into our current you know broader healthcare system? Like, why is our healthcare system basically set up right now to enable this this psychedelic rollout to happen? Sure. I mean, I think that listeners to the Jackman show will know about the sort of broader absurdities of the American healthcare system. I do kind of think that mental health care has a particular history that um, that, you know, makes it not just an effect of the fact that we don't have Medicare for all, but something yeah. sort of much more particular. Um, and that has to do with um, the so-called biological revolution in psychiatry. Um, I mean, sort of put put briefly. Uh, in beginning in the 60s, roughly, there was a move against the dominant psychoanalytic regime in psychiatry, uh, away from talk therapy and towards the use of, of different different drugs, um, mm -hmm. sort of typically doled out in much shorter sessions uh, than than the psychoanalysts were used to. And from the perspective of insurance companies, this is a no brainer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to to be able to see someone. Uh, uh, you know, to, to give them a pill rather than, you know, hour-long therapy sessions a few times a week, it's a lot cheaper. Um, so yeah. it makes sense from their perspective. Um, but the specifics of the drug development process also play a role here. Um, you know, the, the way in which, like, drug research happens, it's not really about finding cures. They're looking for uh, chronic forms of uh, treatment, again, because it makes them money, right? If they just yeah. gave you one pill to fix a problem, it's not as lucrative for them as having uh, maintenance medications. And so the kinds of drugs that they were interested in were drugs that, um, you know, were, were, were marginally better than the alternatives. In the case of the SSRIs and the, uh, and the SRNIs, um, it's really pretty marginal. And I think that um, we're sort of at the point where you know, even the people who really thought Prozac was the brain drug of the 90s are questioning its overall efficacy. So, um, you know, I mean, it's those specifics, uh, it's really, you know, the profit motive at the end of the day uh, that have made uh, the, the drugs that are doled out for mental health treatment 
pretty pretty bad in comparison to what it could be. I mean, there is a whole community of psychonauts out there. You can read about them on arrowid.org, uh, who have been experimenting with all sorts of novel substances over the years. And um, it's not just MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, whatever that, that bear curative potential. Uh, there are an infinite range of synthetic substances out there that uh, I know. I think eventually, if the current trends continue, will be uh, on the market. So I, I suppose that gets us to the question of what the psychedelic rollout could look like. Um, basically, after legalization, how do you think, or or how does it seem like large pharmaceutical companies are sort of positioning themselves right now to kind of capitalize on that legalization? Yeah, I mean, it's I I should I should say that it it seems like all of the all of the trends are pointing in the direction of medical legalization imminently. Mm -hmm. So there's a recent uh, Health and Human Services report that talked about the sort of imminent legalization of MDMA and psilocybin treatments, like within roughly two years' time. Uh, I think MDMA is probably going to be out before psilocybin. It's scheduled for like a kind of 2023 FDA approval. Um, I'm sorry, say the question one more time, Jen. Um, just, just curious how big pharmaceutical companies thus far have been sort of positioning themselves to kind of capitalize on eventual legalization. Right, sorry. Um, yeah, so there's, there's uh, you know, big, well-known pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson uh, that uh, yeah. are investing. Um, they have a, a nasal spray called Spravato, which is sort <laughs> of, um, uh, essentially like one isomer of ketamine that's out for the treatment of depression. Uh, but there's also sort of large market disruptors as well. Um, Compass, uh, MindMed, um, Peter Thiel is, is uh, hmm. behind Compass, or he's one investor in Compass uh, Pharmaceuticals. And um, so there's a lot of companies that are very interested in this. Uh, it seems like the way in which they want to roll it out is essentially to renew the existing system, but just with different and in many cases, better drugs, right? Yeah. So uh, not to change the practice of psychiatry, not to, um, you know, uh, to, to, to um, challenge the bottom line of insurance companies in any, in any way, but essentially to take a class of drugs that is not working that well and to just replace them with a new class of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, this is very much in opposition to what uh, many psychedelic enthusiasts are hoping for, which is um, not just a change of drugs, but a change of the modality of therapy uh, to, to sort of think about uh, mental health care provision in a radically different way. Now, right now, those two forces are aligned, the big companies and the psychedelic enthusiasts. Um, but it does sort of seem like eventually it's going to break in one way, that the company's uh, model is going to win out, given their power over the market. Yeah, I, I want to wrap up kind of on that question. And this is something that I think you've been sort of alluding to throughout the talk. And this comes up in your piece. So on the one hand, we've got like big pharma, right? And then on the other hand, you have kind of these psychedelic enthusiasts, right? Or I think you call them the true believers at one point in your piece, uh, who genuinely sort of envision these drugs as a form of treatment that, as you had said, can kind of go beyond the constraints of psychiatry under capitalism. Uh, now, I think, you know, it's easy to think of these two groups in opposition, but something that comes up in your piece is that, as, as you just noted, like there is a kind of alignment between the two. So maybe talk a little bit just to wrap up uh, about how the kind of enthusiasm of the true believers has maybe inadvertently ended up enabling this new kind of capitalist psychedelic gold rush. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that in general, we live in a time where people are hyper vigilant about the different kinds of snake oils being peddled today. Yeah. There are an infinite number of uh, kinds of like quick fixes uh, on the market. People sort of like proclaiming that like, this is this is the thing, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially when it comes from the top down, when it comes from people like Peter Thiel or when it comes from like biotech executives, it's just not very convincing. Like they're not right. they're not very convincing in, uh, you know, in making the case to people that this is the one thing. And so as a result, I think Americans are increasingly paranoid given the kind of things that um, that are peddled to them. In the case of psychedelics, you know, uh, people like Peter Thiel don't need to write the copy. Uh, mm -hmm. They've got, they can rely upon this very um, enthusiastic group of psychedelic researchers and users um, to uh, sort of tout the product for them. And um, just to be clear, like, I, I think that those psychedelic researchers have good reason for their enthusiasm. I, right. I think that when it comes to um, addressing uh, PTSD, anxiety, depression, like these are drugs with real um, potential, or at least they're better than sort of what's on the market today. So I don't think that they're wrong to be enthusiastic. The sort of contradiction that I point to at the end of the article is that they're essentially like running cover for these uh, this, this emerging big psych complex. Um, and, you know, it's a difficult position to be in. On the one hand, they want what's better for their patients. On the other hand, they're very much playing into um, existing market trends. Yeah. All right. Ben Fong's latest piece for Jacobin, again, is the psychedelic renaissance is on the verge of an uneasy enlightenment. We will be linking that down below. Ben, thanks for your time. It was great to see you as always. Thanks so much, Jen. You too. All right, so we'll be back in a minute with Ariella Thornhill interviewing Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in August and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Decolonial Marxism, Essays from the Pan-African Revolution by Walter Rodney, a previously unpublished collection of Rodney's essays on race, colonialism, and Marxism. The Disappearance of Yosef Mengele, a novel by Oliver Guez, a rigorously researched factual novel tracing the angel of death as he flees from international police through South America. Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It by Vivek Chibber, an analysis of the core dynamics of our economy and politics. And Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back by Jeremy Gilbert and Alex Williams, a look at how we came to live in a world dominated by big tech and finance. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Jacobin Show. We are joined today by Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad to talk about their book, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. So I wanted to start by talking through the way you frame um, the book. And the book is based off of a discussion, transcripts of a discussion that you both had. But you use this metaphor of the godfather, a mafia boss, um, to discuss U.S. military and geopolitical power. Why did you use this framework? And what about U.S. foreign policy specifically are you trying to shine light on with that metaphor? I think it's uh, 
pretty reasonable first approximation to a theory of international relations. So take uh, the United States since 1945 has it basically replaced Britain as the world dominant power. Britain reluctantly became what the British Foreign Office called a junior partner to the United States. The US, of course, had overwhelming power at the end of the Second World War, nothing remotely like it in history. And it was, there was intelligent planning. We have detailed records of it. Every area of the world was assigned what was called its function within the overall system that would be dominated by the United States. So, for example, uh, Southeast Asia, the function was to, to provide raw materials, resources to the former colonial powers in Europe so that they could reconstruct within the U.S.-dominated framework. Uh, Africa was George Kennan, who was head of the State Department planning staff, who wrote this. He said, we're not much interested in Africa, so we can hand it over to Europe to exploit, his word, uh, to exploit for its reconstruction. Uh, and it'll give the Europeans a sense that they have something gratifying. We're taking everything away from them, but they'll have Africa to exploit, and so on through the world. Well, there is what the United States calls a rules-governed international order, a term you hear all the time. The U.S. does not accept the United Nations international order. It, it helped formulate it, but doesn't accept it. It can't, because the U.N., system rules out U.S. foreign policy. It bans the threat or use of force in international affairs. So obviously the U.S. can't accept that. So accept the rules-based order where you, we set the rules and we are effectively the godfather. Kind of run like the mafia. If some small storekeeper doesn't pay his protection money, you send in your goons to smash him up even if you don't need the money. So if uh, Maurice Bishop in Grenada starts fishing cooperatives under the Carter administration, that's a no-no. Uh, so you have to send uh, 6,000 special force uh, Marines and special forces to overcome the resistance of 40 Cuban construction workers who already said they're perfectly willing to make an accommodation then we can stand tall and be heroic and uh, settle that issue. And so it goes one after the other. The world runs very much like the mafia. Uh, the godfather is in charge. He sets the rules, the rules-based international order, and everyone else had better obey or else. Sometimes there are people who don't obey. In fact, one of the, the problem with China right now is that China refuses to obey. Now, that's a problem. Europe obeys. When the U.S. Uh, imposes sanctions on Cuba and Iran, Europe doesn't like it, but they adhere to it. Uh, China ignores the godfather, and that's intolerable. That's what's called the China threat in U.S. affairs.
and a good deal of, I, I don't want to exaggerate, not everything works this way, but I say it's a pretty good first approximation to the way the world works. You know, if I could add to that, um, <clears throat> there's a contemporary set of examples for that. Uh, let's take the case of the United States and the African continent. Linda Thomas Greenfield, the uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, was in Ghana and Uganda. Whilst in Ghana, she made a number of statements uh, warning African countries, 55 of them, telling them not to trade with Russia and China. She was quite forthright. Now, that's interesting. Um, just before the ambassador went to the African continent and just before U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken followed her to say much the same thing, there was a visit to some African countries by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Interestingly, Mr. Lavrov didn't say to African countries, don't trade with the United States. Now, you may have all kinds of problems with Russia, and believe me, there are lots of problems with Russia. But on the public record, the Russians weren't going around telling people, and the Chinese certainly don't do this, don't trade with the United States. But seemingly, it's perfectly accurate, it's perfectly um, acceptable to sections of the liberal media, including liberal media in the United States, the New York Times, Washington Post, and so on, that high officials of the United States government can go around the African continent and say, we are telling you what to do. That sort of what Noam calls the godfather attitude is treated as perfectly normal. Now, interestingly, Linda Thomas Greenfield, in one of the interviews she gave in Accra, said that U.S. foreign policy is in, on Africa U.S. foreign policy in Africa is an open book. That was the phrase she used. Well, let's open the book. Um, what open book is she uh, reading? If you go back to the 1960s, there was great anxiety in the U.S. Um, ruling class circles because the tendency of the freedom movement in the Congo was towards the left. And indeed, Patrice Lumumba wins a fair and square election to head his government. Now, why was the United States bothered by an election in the Congo, which elected Patrice Lumumba so bothered that U.S. intelligence worked with Belgian intelligence and British intelligence, not only to overthrow Mr. Lumumba, but to assassinate him in 1961? What was the problem? I'm offering the ambassador, a book to read. She should read a book called White Malice, recently come out, which demonstrates using archives in the United States and in the United Kingdom, that the reason the United States was so bothered with Lumumba is that there is a uranium mine in the Congo at Shinkolbe. This mine is the mine from which the United States sourced uranium for the bombs against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. United States couldn't um, allow the Congolese to trade uranium with the Soviet Union. And that's the reason they enter and conduct a, well, undemocratic, that's a charitable word to use, an undemocratic coup against the people of the Congo. So it's an open book, but 
what book are you reading? And that's the reason why the term Godfather is so valuable because it shows you how normal that behavior is and how much nobody blinks an eye when people like, very nice people, by the way, Linda Thomas Greenfield, awfully nice person. When they say things like this, it's taken as fact, not as ideology. And I think that's the real concern here. Yeah, it's really clear throughout the book that the terms are set by the United States. The conversation is set by the United States and the military and economic interventions serve as internal and external discipline. So they are externally disciplining anybody who dares, you know, break or deviate from any of the rules set out at any moment. And they're internally disciplining, you know, allies in other countries who generally follow along, but it's showing constantly the might of the United States and what happens if you step a toe out of line. Um, Speaking to what you were saying with the China threat, uh, this has recently been in the news because of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and I'd like both of you to comment on that. But you also talk about in the book um, about the way that China is trying to create systems that can meet or match or um, in some way contest U.S. power. And that's both economic um, with the um, Belt and Road Initiative. You talk about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. China has been doing development in Africa. And from what I've read in the mainstream news, the line is the Chinese don't mind working with corrupt leaders, so they're fine to, you know, build these um, infrastructure projects down there. But this seems like it gets to part of the core of the idea of the China threat. And there has been in the last week or so some escalating tensions. Can you talk about Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and more generally, um, what is the threat from China? Is it an alternative um, global banking system like the SWIFT system? Is it a way of checking U.S. sanctions? Is it a way of checking U.S. military power? Can you speak to that? Well, with regard to Pelosi, uh, this was a very reckless uh, act of uh, personal aggrandizement. She's obviously trying to beef up her CV and show that she can be as tough as the craziest lunatic male that you can find. There was no other reason for it. And for 50 years, there's been a basic agreement about Taiwan. It's called the One China Policy. It's agreed that China's part of Taiwan's part of China and that uh, China and the United States will stay in a state of strategic ambiguity, as it's called. Uh, they tacitly agree that neither of them will do anything to overthrow the status quo by force. Okay, that's kept uh, for 50 years of peace, few breaks, uh, very successful policy. Uh, in recent years, the United States has been increasing provocations, uh, which China responds to. Uh, same in this case. Pelosi's visit was a major provocation. Uh, China didn't shoot down her plane, as they could have. They simply responded by 
a demonstration that China can close off Taiwan, blockade it, uh, so that it will uh, it will strangle it. It's just it's a trading. It's a rock in the ocean. Lives on trade. Uh, China surrounds it with military force. It's stuck. It'll collapse. So China carried out military maneuvers, showing that uh, they also uh, uh, imposed some sanctions on Taiwan and also breaks with the United States, simply to show we're not going to be pushed around. The sanctions are probably more serious than they look. So one of the things that China uh, imposed was apparent. We don't have all details, but it seems that they imposed a ban on export of sand to Taiwan. Well, that doesn't sound like much until you think for a minute. Sand, Taiwan's a rock. If they want to build something, they need concrete. Concrete is based on sand. Uh, So China's saying, well, you fool around. We can undercut your economy uh, very easily. We don't have to invade. Uh, That's basically the message. Now, we have to recognize that the U.S. provocations go way beyond Taiwan. Uh, The United States recently has been running a huge naval operation, multinational naval operation, RIMPAC, it's called, with uh, all threatening China in the Pacific, major operations. Uh, The U.S. has established what it calls a... Uh, uh, sentinel states to, to encircle China, uh, hostile states run by the United States. Uh, uh, Biden provided precision weapons, which hadn't been there before, to be able to target China. Uh, U.S. nuclear submarines have the capacity to destroy China, in fact, the world, uh, but uh, they're all surrounding it. The, There's an agreement with Australia, which one of Australia's leading strategic analysts called uh, Clinton Fernandez, called a sub-imperial country, which serves U.S. power in the, as a base for U.S. power in the region. There's a deal to provide uh, the AUKUS deal, it's called, provide Australia with nuclear submarines, which can seriously threaten China in the South China Sea claim to be able to just sink its fleet if they want to uh, monitor Chinese operations there. Uh, The Quad, so it's called, is uh, um, South Korea, uh, Japan, Australia, Japan, United States, and India. India is a reluctant partner, doesn't want to participate in this game. But uh, the idea is to surround and circle China with hostile powers, which will prevent it from breaking out, doing anything. That's constant severe threats. Uh, What's the threat of China? Uh, I think it's what I said before. They're there. Actually, the former Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, well-known international statesman, had an article in the Australian press 
asking what actually is the threat of China? What are we worried about? He ran through the reasons and none of them make any sense. He said the real threat of China is China is there. It's there and it refuses to follow orders. Here, I think we can go back to the Godfather image. Take, say, Cuba. Why, why does the United States devote such extraordinary efforts to torture and destroy Cuba? Um, there's no precedent for it in, in history, in fact. Like right now, Cuba has a huge fire. It's getting support from Mexico, from Venezuela, not the United States. You have to strangle and torture the Cubans. Well, we know the reason. I go back to State Department records in the 1960s, very explicit. The threat of Castro is his successful defiance of policies going back to the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, which stated the intention of the United States to dominate the hemisphere. Couldn't do it then. Britain was too strong, but they understood sooner or later the U.S. would be able to do it. And in fact, in 1898, uh, the United States did intervene in Cuba, what's called here the liberation of Cuba, what in fact was the prevention of the liberation of Cuba from Spain. The U.S. intervened to prevent it, turned Cuba into a virtual colony. As soon as Cuba broke out of that in 1959, acts began. Since then, they've been carrying out successful denying, defiance. And the godfather doesn't accept that. Doesn't matter whether there are any resources or not. Uh, just to and add a comment on what Vijay said about you, uh, the Congo. My own feeling is even if the Congo hadn't had uranium, they still would have killed Lumumba because the Congo is the richest, most powerful part of Africa. If it succeeds in developing, it'll bring all Africa along with it, the U.S. not having that. So Lubamba was, Lubamba, Lubamba was assassinated. The Belgian got there first, but CIA had him on their hit list. Then they installed a kleptomaniac murderer who would follow U.S. orders just to make sure that Congo doesn't move towards successful defiance or anybody else. Well, that's China. China is not going to be pushed around. They have several thousand years of history. They went through a century of humiliation, ended with the Maoist revolution. They're not going to accept it again. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is a huge initiative of investment and development. You're quite right. They're perfectly willing to work with anyone, corrupt, non-corrupt. Just build this system, which is China-based, includes most of Asia already, moving to Africa, even moving to Latin America, U.S. backyard. U.S. can't stop it. Moving to the Middle East, even Israel. So China owns half the Haifa port. Well, U.S. doesn't like it, but doesn't have the ability to stop it. The United Arab Emirates is a key to the Chinese, what's called Maritime Silk Route, which reaches to the Red Sea, onto the way of moving towards Europe, uh, which will 
probably want to join this. It's much too rich an area to avoid. China's just moving steadily and slowly. No violence, uh, investment, development. The U.S. can't do anything about it. It's going crazy. It's part of the reason for the hysteria about China now. I mean, the hysteria is just beyond discussion. Uh, so it takes something like the United States is collapsing from within. We all know that. Uh, the bridges are collapsing. The subways don't work. Nothing works. The health system doesn't work. So we need spending to rebuild the United States. Well, finally, Congress got together and did agree to a bill uh, for some construction of infrastructure, not because the United States needs bridges, because we have to outcompete China. It's the China competition bill. I mean, this is pathological, you know, but it shows what when the godfather is in trouble, he goes crazy. Just to, again, build a little on what Noam was saying. First, I just want to say from a personal standpoint, um, you know, I I think it's important for intellectuals, um, different kinds of people to interact with each other across all kinds of barriers. I've been a great proponent of interacting with people that one doesn't agree with. I think it's it's a good part of the human experience. So, you know, for the past, I don't know, decade, more than the past decade, I've developed very close relationships with intellectuals in China. I've held conversations with them. You know, I've spent time talking to Zhang Weiwei, leading intellectual. He was the translator of Deng Xiaoping. Um, Spent a lot of time talking with somebody I deeply respect, Wang Hui, teaches at Tsinghua University and so on. These connections by themselves have for some people um, been a red rag to the bull because they claim that any contact with China is somehow uh, has you, you know, in fact, influenced by China as if, for instance, I don't have my own brain. Um, In other words, it goes back to a debate from an earlier period when George W. Bush, borrowing from Samuel Huntington, you know, began to use the kind of clash of civilizations rhetoric, um, hyped up between Christianity and Islam at the time. Now we're seeing a kind of clash of civilizations rhetoric between the so-called West and Russia, China, and so on. You know, at the time when George Bush began to talk in this clash of civilizations way, leading figures in Iran sent a letter to the United States government, in fact, directly to George W. Bush, where they said, rather than a clash of civilizations, can't we have a dialogue across civilizations? Strikes me that um, many of the Western governments led by the United States have lost the appetite for both diplomacy and dialogue. Uh, Strikes me that, you know, the demonization of people substitutes for a mature attitude toward them. Look, frankly, the United States knows that in many areas of economic life, high-speed rail, green technology, even now some areas of computerization, certainly telecommunications, Chinese firms can produce goods 
as good as the United States, you know, as efficient as the United States, and of course, cheaper than U.S. firms, even when U.S. firms produce these goods in China. So Apple phones produced in China are much more expensive than Huawei phones. Rather than merely compete commercially, the United States has decided to utilize its diplomatic, military, and ideological force to intimidate China into stop developing its own technological capacity. And, you know, there used to be a familiar word for that, which nowadays doesn't get used in polite conversation much. The word for that was imperialism. You know, you're using extra economic force to gain advantages. Why can't the United States get its act together, produce better phones, produce better technology at a cheaper price, produce green technology? Why can't it just compete with China, you know, in, a, in the marketplace? Well, it can't and it knows it can't. And therefore, it is willing to destroy the world in order to maintain its inefficient economic domination of the world. And I want to underline the use of that word. It is willing to push its inefficient economic domination of the world rather than take some lessons from other people, not only the Chinese, but other people who are producing things perhaps better, cheaper and differently. But you can't, again, drawing from the word Noam uses often, you can't get the godfather to learn new tricks. The godfather's trick is to go to somebody's stable, take their favorite horse, cut off its head and put it in your bed. That's what the godfather knows. The godfather doesn't understand how to convince or how to learn. And that, I think, is something young people in the United States it's a lesson to, to take from this is that learn how to do things better. Learn how to talk to other people. Don't use your muscle to maintain your power because that is bringing the world near destruction or, well, annihilation. Okay. And I'm not, a, I'm an optimistic person, but I'm afraid for that. I'm afraid this attitude is really bringing us to the brink of a war we can't imagine. Yeah, what you've said echoes some of the examples in the book of this bizarre brinksmanship from the United States where it essentially puts its foot down when other countries and territories sign nuclear treaties or offer conditions of surrender. You talk about this with Saddam Hussein. You list the five nuclear weapons free zones and you talk about the United States's complete opposition to this. Do you think there's more going on here than um, muscle flexing? And if so, what is it? Well, it's not just muscle flexing. Uh, take the most crucial case, the Middle East nuclear free zone. It's coming up right now. Uh, the as you know, of course, the United States, Trump pulled out of the joint agreement with uh, Iran on nuclear weapons, which was working very successfully. Uh, U.S. intelligence agrees that Iran was living up to all the conditions. U.S. pulled out. Europe was strongly opposed. But as I said, they obey. They 
hate the U.S. sanctions, but they obey them. They're not like China. Uh, now there are negotiations as to whether to reconstruct it. In the background is something everyone knows and no one is allowed to say. There's a very simple way to avoid any problem, real or imagined. I think mostly imagined, but even if you believe they're real, there's a very simple way to eliminate any threat of Iranian nuclear weapons. Impose a nuclear weapons free zone in the region with inspections, which work. We know that from the joint agreement. Why not? Arab states are strongly in favor of it. They've been pressing it for 25 years. Iran is in favor of it. The global south, G77, about 130 countries, strongly in favor of it. Europe's raising no objections. So what's the problem? U.S. won't allow it. Why won't the U.S. allow it? Well, there's a country called Israel, which has the only, which has a major nuclear weapon system, uh, happens to be a U.S. client. The U.S. will not permit Israeli nuclear weapons to be inspected. Uh, in fact, the U.S. will not, does not even officially recognize that Israel has nuclear weapons. Claims we don't know, which of course is nonsense. Everyone knows. And there's a reason for that too. Uh, if the U.S. were to acknowledge it, U.S. law comes into play. And it can well be argued that uh, U.S. aid to Israel is illegal because of its development of nuclear weapons outside the international framework. Neither political party in the United States nor the intellectual community wants to open that door. So nobody will talk about this. So therefore, we may march into a war in the Middle East. It's a grave threat because we want to ensure that U.S. aid to Israel is not threatened. You can't talk about this. Actually, if the American population was aware of this, I don't think they'd be very happy about it. So the press is very careful never to discuss it. Uh, the New York Times came close a couple of months ago and said, why don't we move towards a Persian Gulf nuclear weapons-free zone? Persian Gulf, omitting somebody. In fact, it added... Israeli nuclear weapons are non-negotiable. Okay. Well, thank you for the editors for your honesty. Uh, now, we know what's going on. Israel's a loyal client state. It's a base for U.S. power in the region. Has been since 1967. We're not going to allow any uh, interference with that. It's a sensible position on the part of the Godfather, and it might drive us to war in the Middle East, a major war. It's not the only case. So Africa wants to establish a nuclear weapons-free zone. Can't. The United States wants a nuclear weapons base in the island of Diego Garcia, which is part of Africa. It was a British colony. The British, the junior partner of the United States, 
obliged the godfather by kicking out the population, driving them out, and violating UN orders and claiming it's part of the British Empire. Well, that's the role of the junior partner, the sub-imperialist, as Clinton Fernandez calls him. So Africa can't have a nuclear weapons-free zone. Uh, Pacific, same reason, U.S. insists on having nuclear bases on its Pacific islands. This is not just showing your muscle. The nuclear bases on the Pacific islands threaten China. Okay, they're part of the encirclement of China, saying we're ready to destroy you if you make a move. You know, All of this is logical imperial planning. May not like it, but it's not irrational. It's very rational, thoughtful, imperial planning. Can't say that in the United States. There's a doctrine called American exceptionalism, which says everything we do is benign, uh, full of love of others. Uh, we invade Iraq. It's because we love them so much. Uh, sometimes we make mistakes. Anybody can make mistakes. But uh, we're just a perfect power. Uh, it's interesting to look into how this works and can talk about it. I'll just give you one example. There's one of the top, maybe the founder of modern, hard-headed, realist international relations theory, tough-minded, no-nonsense, no sentimentality, Hans Morgenthau. He, a very good scholar, serious guy, uh, he wrote a book called The Purpose of America. Uh, other countries don't have purposes, but the U.S. does. The purpose of America is to bring freedom and all good things to the world. And then he said he's a good, he's a good scholar. He went through the record. He said it's kind of odd. If you look at the U.S. record, it always opposes the U.S. purpose. He says, he says, some people bring this up and say the purpose isn't real, but they're making a mistake. They're confusing the abuse of history with history. The abuse of history is what happened. History is the way it's reflected in our minds. So the way it's reflected in our minds is benign intentions gone awry. So that's history. Abuse of history is just what we do all the time. And he says, to make this confusion, he says, it's like the error of atheism, which denies God's benevolence by talking about bad things that happen. And we don't want to make the error of atheism. So we want our religion of worship of the state to be uh, untouched. That's hard-headed realism. Then you go over to the sentimental guys. Well, all of this fits together. Yeah, and, and you know, you add to this the scandalous treatment of these events or of this history by the media. Um, Noam already talked about the New York Times editorial page. And, you know, what Noam was talking about was an editorial board statement, which quite cavalierly talked about this Persian Gulf nuclear-free zone and quite, you know, nimbly 
said Israel is not to be part of this. Just very casual. Um, you know, the media, well, I'm a naive person. I've been started my career as a journalist. I have, I love reporting stories. I love the practice of journalism. So I always have this high minded idea, you know, that journalists must have this, well, purpose to use the Hans Morgenthau um, word. Journalists should have this purpose, you know, we should be out there to tell the story, to lift up stories from the shadows. It's curious that um, most journalists, uh, or at least most publications, I know when journalists file stories, it's not exactly what appears, but most publications, um, when it comes to writing about those whom the United States picks out as adversaries, don't treat those adversaries as human. And I, I want to say this in this language. There's a kind of international division of humanity that gets set up. The North Koreans are simply not human. Many years ago, I remember reading a statement made by a Western journalist who said, you know, we have a practice when we report on most countries or most events, we like to get one or two sources to get confirmation. He said, with North Korea, I can say anything. I can say that, you know, the, the president is dead. And in fact, repeatedly, um, these stories appear, which are not based at all, in fact, on one defector's claim and so on. Um, but it's not just a North Korea story. People laugh. You know, you mention North Korea, they start laughing. It's not a North Korea story. As we show in the book, when it came to Iraq, repeatedly Saddam Hussein tried to cut a deal with the United States. Not interested. Media ignored Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a monster, had to be dispatched. No way there could be diplomacy. Gaddafi, Gaddafi is a monster. There's no way that the media would report that the African Union had opened dialogue, that there were people on a plane ready to go and talk to Mr. Gaddafi. He was willing to dialogue and so on. You're not even allowed to imagine that the adversary, the Iranian, the Chinese, the Russian, you're not allowed to imagine that the Venezuelans, the Cubans, the Nicaraguans, have opinions. And if they are, have opinions, opinions can be debated and dialogued. But if you paint them as monsters, you know, merely monsters, you know, Maduro is a monster, uh, Xi Jinping is a monster, and so on. Well, we know from our childhood story books, uh, fairy tales, that monsters don't have opinions. You don't negotiate with the monster. I worry very much, Ariella, when I look at the reporting, uh, particularly by the press in the United States, in the UK, maybe a little better in on the continent of Europe, just a little better. And I really hesitate by even making that, um, that statement. When you look at the media, this international division of humanity is just absolutely normal. You know, it's perfectly acceptable to pillory uh, people in Iran, you know, politically or perfectly acceptable to pillory Mr. Putin. Again, you might have problems with him. Mr. Putin has a lot to answer for. It's true. I'm going back to the Chechnya war. You know, there's a long history, lots of problems. On the other hand, Mr. Putin, you know, won an election. Now you can say, well, the election system in, in, in Russia is corrupt. But who's the you that's saying that? The senator from Texas which has a terribly corrupt political system, 
um, the you know president of the United States who was elected by an arcane slavery era electoral college system. I mean, okay, you have problems with the way the election system in Russia is set up. You have problems with that. You set it up. Remember that after the fall of the Soviet Union, U.S. advisors went there. They set up the system. They liked the system then because Mr. Yeltsin, the first president, 1991 to 1999, was completely subservient to the United States. Nobody criticized the Russian political system then, even though I believe it's 97 when Mr. Yeltsin patently stole the election. Um, you know, nobody complained then. When Mr. Putin comes to power in 1999, until around 2004, 5, 6, 7, United States had no problem with him. In fact, Thomas Friedman wrote an article in the New York Times in which he he said we're rooting for Putin in his folksy Thomas Friedman language. Rooting for Putin. That was less than a decade ago. Um, the problem again, just to return to our principal theme. Is if somebody says, "Look, I'm not going to follow your orders," then they go on the other side of the international division of humanity, and suddenly Putin, Putin for Putin, becomes Putin the dictator.、Um, the moment you say, "I don't agree with you," you go not to somebody with whom you don't agree, because that's acceptable. I don't agree with somebody, but you go to the other side of this membrane. Called the international division of humanity, your humanity is denied you. You become a monster, and then the only language that you claim they understand is the language of force and violence. The way Saddam Hussein went from being the close ally of the United States, great friend of Donald Rumsfeld, and so on, suddenly crosses the membrane, becomes this monster. Previously, you palled around with him in Baghdad. Then he becomes a monster. And then the only language he is supposed to understand, even though he's writing to you and saying, "Let's negotiate. How can we settle this?" No, you say we don't understand you, especially your brand of Arabic. You only speak exocet missiles and so on from that era.、Um, and it's this that seriously is disturbing that the U.S. media and large parts of the Western media in general simply has this attitude that certain people. Don't need to be taken seriously. We don't need to report what they're saying. Not even asking you to agree with them, but we're not even going to report what they're saying. Yeah, I think there's a thread there, where、um, there is this concept of American exceptionalism, America as the kind of humanitarian police of the world. Always benevolent, always interceding, so that American values can take seed in other countries. And yet, it because of that principle, and、um, because of the humanitarian divide that you've described, VJ, we get a constant state of exception, which is a term that I'm borrowing from Giorgio Ag- Agamben, which is that because there is a sense that all. Military intervention by the United States is for the good of humanity, and we define who is human. There is no such thing as collateral damage. There is no cost to civilian casualties. There is no long-term squalor, brutality, and division created by these things. It can only lead to a just outcome. And it's been interesting for me because I came of age during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Um, 
which I watched in real time turn into these propagandized talking points. And it was bizarre. It, it was the first kind of moment in my life where I could see this narrative shift, where suddenly some people were subhuman. And I had experienced it, you know, being black in America in a different way. But seeing this on this massive scale, watching the bombings, watching the um, bombings of Iraq and the trial of Saddam, it was um, striking and life-changing for me because you saw what happens when an entire nation of people are no longer defined as human beings. And for me, being Black in America, it's my history as well. It's why people that I come from were brought here. But I wanted to talk about um, grounding this in what's happening in Afghanistan and Iraq now, because we have sort of largely started ignoring it. After the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, there were a series of stories focusing on the humanitarian crises left in the wake. I did see in Pennsylvania a billboard of Joe Biden with a, like, sort of Taliban-esque um, outfit on saying, thanks, Joe, love the Taliban. I, I saw it turned into a Republican talking point. But now it seems largely ignored. And the people in both countries, both Iraq and Afghanistan, are suffering. Iraq currently is experiencing a heat wave, I think, with temperatures going over 50 degrees Celsius. There are infrastructure issues, which are no doubt caused by uh, U.S. military action there. Afghanistan is facing a humanitarian crisis, the scale of which I find it's hard to even reckon with. Can you talk about what's happening there? Um, and how do we put the United States's feet to the fire to talk about accountability in those regions? Well, just one background comment on American exceptionalism. There's nothing exceptional about it. Our predecessors in imperial domination were exactly the same. The British were the most angelic country in history while they were destroying India, carrying out hideous slavery in the Caribbean, one massive crime after another. British intellectuals were hailing themselves as utterly angelic. We're so marvelous, nobody even understands us. So the French are even worse. So this is just imperial behavior. Afghanistan now is, the, the, first of all, it is a total catastrophe. I mean, huge numbers of tens of millions of people are facing starvation. There's food in the market. They don't, they don't have, they can't access their bank accounts, those who have money to buy food while they see their children starving. The United States holds their money. It's in U.S. banks. Won't release it. Won't release it because of claims that U.S. citizens want a potential compensation for 9-11 which Afghans had absolutely nothing to do with. This is so scandalous, I can't even find words to discuss it. Uh, so so uh, it's a hideous situation. Even releasing the funds would come nowhere near uh, solving the problem. We spent 20 years destroying the country. 
you know, it's barely functioning. Uh, I think it's pretty clear what we ought to be doing if there was a shred of humanity in policy formation. Well, what can we do about it? We all know the answer. First thing we have to do is bring people to understand the facts of the matter, the bare facts of the matter, uh, then move on to say, look, as people, we do have moral instincts. Maybe states don't, but people do. So let's act on them. But let's start with the beginning. This goes back to something Vijay said before about negotiations. Why did we invade Afghanistan? There was no bait. There's no reason for it. No justification at all. Uh, the, the U.S. fact of the matter is, the U.S. had no idea who carried out the 9/11 attack. Even eight months after the invasion, head of the FBI, Robert Mueller's first press conference conceded that we suspect that Al-Qaeda was responsible, but we really don't know. So they invaded with no knowledge of anything. Uh, the uh, probably best explanation for the invasion was given by the leading figure of the anti-Taliban Afghan resistance, Abdul Haq, highly regarded Afghan leader, was uh, at an interview. He was asked, why did the U.S. invade? He said, look, the invasion is going to kill lots of Afghans. It's undermining our efforts to overthrow the Taliban from within. But the U.S. doesn't care. They want to show their muscle and intimidate everyone. That's probably correct. You look at the record, it supports it. The Taliban made many offers to release al-Qaeda, even though the U.S. wouldn't provide any evidence about Osama bin Laden didn't have any, in fact, nevertheless worked out various options. Finally, they just said, look, we'll surrender totally. You can do what you like. Donald Rumsfeld responded, we do not negotiate. He was, uh, George Bush echoed it, no negotiations. We're just going to show our muscle and intimidate everyone. We'll smash up Afghanistan because we don't know what else to do. Uh, We've got the force. Nobody can defend themselves from it. So we'll just smash you to a pulp and intimidate everyone. If they wanted to capture al-Qaeda bin Laden, they could have done it with a police operation, with the Afghans probably agreeing. But uh, no, so we had to smash up Afghanistan and then go on for another 20 years, making it worse. Now they're starving to death. So we have to withhold their funds. Uh, I'd like to see an editorial in the New York Times describing this. It's approximately what it is. So the first thing is bring it to the public, find out what we did. We can go back further and there's no time to talk about it, but it's very interesting to look at the U.S. reaction when the Russians invaded. Just brief fact of the matter is the UN organized diplomatic uh, effort, which was finally successful for the Russians to withdraw. The U.S. was trying to block it all the way. Right to the end, the U.S. tried to block the Russian withdrawal. 
which was being worked out diplomatically by the UN. We actually have a definitive source on that now, a book by Cordovez and Harrison, the UN diplomat involved, and one of the leading US experts on Afghanistan. Uh, what they conclude is the US was fighting Russia to the last Afghan. Uh, does that sound familiar? It's happening right now in Ukraine. Yes, people ought to know about those things. And then they can have a basis, at least, for reacting as human beings would, not slaves of a propaganda system. And I think they would. I think if you can get people to understand what's happening, they will respond humanely. Anyway, that's the only hope we have. I wanted to talk about a term that you guys use in your discussion, which is military Keynesianism. And I'd like you to speak about what that is, because there's this aha moment, I think, that happens when you're describing this um, sort of strategy. And it's similar to a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's a public school teacher, and she was talking about how she's scared to teach because of school shootings and the absurd, sadistic, and bizarre uh, Republican um I guess, suggestions that we arm teachers. And I think in Ohio, there was a cap on training teachers to use guns so they could get 24 hours of training and that's it. Um, but I said, well, this, this, it's not hypocritical because the Republican Party may claim to care about children, but what they care about the most is dismantling the public school system in America. And what better way to do that than fill it with guns and keep it violent and terrifying? And I think when you pull back from hypocrisy, you find something that makes it cohesive. It's like you said earlier, Noam, it's not that these strategies are irrational. It's not that they're wasteful, even. It's just that we haven't put our finger on what the overarching goal is. And I think that your discussion of military Keynesianism does this we hear over and over that the United States military has a bloated, massive budget. We have bases all over the world. You have described efforts to stymie nuclear weapons treaties, which seems absurd to any person who cares about their lives or the lives of others. Um, this, for me, felt like a overarching way of understanding some of those actions. Can you talk about that term? Well, I think there are several factors involved in what you described. Uh, one of them is destroying the public education system. That's very significant. Uh, mass public education back in the late 19th, early 20th century was one of the major contributions that the United States made to general democracy. The United States pioneered mass public education Made, it, it had plenty of flaws. So, for example, the, the college system, mass public education at the college level, uh, that was made possible simply by uh, genocidal destruction of the indigenous population and stealing their lands. A little footnote in the background for the great state universities. But now, the, putting that little footnote aside, establishing state universities and a kindergarten up educational system was a major contribution to democracy. It's hated 
by the business world. Why? It's, first of all, they don't want uh, anything out of their control. And then it gives people the wrong ideas. It gives them the idea that you can get together through the uh, public system and do things that are good. You don't want people to have that idea. The idea that must be in people's heads is the only thing that can do anything good is private tyrannies. That's what a corporation is. Private tyranny, controlled from above, unaccountable to the population. That's called libertarian in the United States. Interesting term. But we have to have the country run by unaccountable private tyrannies. Okay? So the idea that the public can do anything decent is very dangerous. So let's kill public education, kill the post office, uh, kill uh, public transportation. Uh, uh, there's a way of doing this, a standard way. What you do is first defund them. Defund them so they don't work. Then people get upset and they'll agree to have something else. So when Margaret Thatcher wanted to destroy the British railway system, defund it. Start getting accidents, trains don't run on time. Say, let's do something else. Sell it to somebody who can make profit from it, then it'll be worse. Okay, That happens over and over. So for the last 40 years, last 40 years have been an interesting period. It's called the neoliberal period. And neoliberalism has all kind of fancy words like let the market reign and so on. It's nonsense. Neoliberalism is a bitter, brutal class war, conscious class war to destroy the general population, place them under the control of private power. If you use the market, no market, doesn't matter. Any technical work. One of the aspects of this is destroy public education. So it's been defunded from the lowest level to the top. You can read an article today about how at the college level, uh, academics and scientists are just pulling out. They're refusing to take the jobs because they're not worth it. They can make more in private industry. They're subject to tons of bureaucracy. They're, they don't get pensions. Why bother? Well, that's part of the system. Why should there be any public system that people benefit from? It's kind of the same as defunding the post office. Why should there be an effective system that works very well for everyone and is under public control? Uh, so getting rid of education is part of that. Uh, the uh, the business of arming teachers is, I mean, you may have seen a, a joke somewhere about a teacher being prepared to teach kindergarten by uh, having a training in how to shoot a gun, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, let's, let's make them hostile places. You ask Ted Cruz, what should we done about schools? More barricades, uh, more guns, uh, police at the door. Wonderful environment for kindergarten students. Uh, but let's, let's have it, then we'll control them. So as far as military Keynesianism is concerned, you have to look at that quite carefully. Everyone has heard of Eisenhower's speech, military-industrial conflicts. 
industrial is not a small part of it. In the 1950s and the 1960s, the United States had something we're supposed to oppose. It's called industrial policy, state industrial policy to develop the economy. That's, we're supposed to condemn that when China does it. That's why we have what we're now using, computers, uh, internet, uh, satellites, uh, almost all of it came out of the state system through the Pentagon. Pentagon is the way you can get money out of Congress without them making a fuss about it. And so you want to build an internet, let's call it the uh, uh, defense, something or other. You want to build the interstate highway system uh, back in the 50s, let's call it the defense highway system. Then Congress will pay for it. Uh, a large part of the modern economy, high-tech economy, comes from large-scale state intervention uh, through the research universities, government laboratories, and so on. That goes up to the present. I mean, take the Moderna vaccine. It comes mostly from research in the public system. Hand it over to private corporations so you get a couple of billionaires out of it. That's the way the system does. So when we talk about military Keynesianism, we should recognize that this is part of the way in which the corporate system uses the state for their own benefit, sometimes producing things which are useful, sometimes not. That's irrelevant. They're mainly for profit. So the whole military Keynesian thing is a complex story. You know, just to uh, come into that complex story a little bit, um, one of the historical and theoretical features of capitalism is that the system is very rarely in equilibrium. Um, you know, there are often periods of great growth and then there are periods of great collapse. You know, people later try to justify this analyzing the historical data and saying there are business cycles, you know, as if to say it's a normal thing that there is a collapse. Well, when you look at a business cycle, a collapse can mean the deterioration of livelihood for very large numbers of people. So one shouldn't be cavalier about that. What is generally called Keynesianism is the belief that at a time of the business cycle downward movement, you know, from the trough, the, the, the peak downward, um, governments can enter because private capital, what Noam called the uh, private tyranny, is unable to actually invest at a time of downward, uh, you know, uh, uh, when the economy is going downhill. They don't want to invest then because they are also feeling insecure. They generally keep their money outside or they invest in things that are secure. At the time, people like Keynes, not only Keynes, but people like Keynes, um, others as well, argued that governments need to intervene and invest in a counter-cyclical fashion. That is to say, invest against the cycle. So when the economy is going downhill, governments can come in and they can put money into infrastructure spending. That, for instance, is exactly what the New Deal was. The New Deal, the spending on bridges and so on in the United States, was a form of counter-cyclical spending. In fact, Paul Sweezy and others, you know, very good technical economists actually looked at a long period of data in the United States 
and they suggested that most counter cyclical spending in the us was not on the social side of the budget in other words it was not on expenditure for public education you know improving you know roofs in schools and raising fee, uh, the pensions of the teachers and so on it wasn't to build bridges it wasn't to build public rail it wasn't to build public goods actually is what sweezy and others found um because the building of public goods is a key part of government spending what they found was that the bulk of counter cyclical spending was actually in the military side now by 2022 you don't actually need to do a major study longitudinal study of us government spending we know that an enormous obscene part of the us budget goes towards the military we say 700 billion but it's actually closer to a trillion dollars because you have to add in the parts of the us budget that goes to the department of energy which manages the maintenance of nuclear weapons and so on it's closer to a trillion dollars if you add in the cia budget which we don't know the national security agency budget which we don't know and so on so this counter cyclical spending done on the military side is generally known as military keynesianism um now why no one has answered the question but i want to just emphasize it why has the united states set apart from say sweden and i'm not a big champion of the swedish system but you can actually compare the two in sweden there's a lot of counter cyclical spending but it happens on the social side of the of the ledger why in the united states does it happen on the military side it's a good question to actually ask mainstream political scientists it's a good question to ask politicians and so on the one answer that should be on the table and actually there's enough evidence published evidence from high officials of the united states government to um validate this answer one answer is that when you build the public good sector the social wages you know you improve public schools you create public transportation you build a public health system you build universal uh, universally free higher education you build creches for young children you know prior preschools and so on all of this in the public domain if you do all that you give people a taste of socialism uh, you give people a real taste of socialism because also people who are elites are sending their children to school or using the same hospitals as working people so now you don't want to see these facilities deteriorate you see if the elite abdicates from public goods if the elite sends their children to private school they use private hospital use private transportation then the elite is not going to care if public goods are in really bad shape so when everybody is put in the same boat you start getting a taste of socialism it looks like from whatever scattered statements exist in the public domain it looks like in the united states there was almost a decision particularly after the new deal to no longer do massive public spending on the social side as part of the counter cyclical the normal counter cyclical policy instead the us government actually balances economic turbulence 
by spending on the military. And that's why I believe that U.S. military spending is actually quite rational. Uh, if you accept the premises of the U.S. ruling elite who don't want to create, use this massive social wealth to create a public good. In fact, in the United States, you could stop, you could cut your military budget by half and you'd still have a larger military than anybody around the planet. Then you can put some of that social wealth towards bringing down your debt towards creating social goods that improve the lives of people who live inside the United States. But no, that's out of the question. And again, not to belabor this, again, this is a decision of the Godfather. Who are you going to question? You can't ask them to change their mind. They've got a settled opinion. There's no space, either, of course, no space with the Republican Party. But where's the space with the Democratic Party to have this conversation? Just and that what Vijay just described was in fact discussed quite publicly and openly in the business press in the late 1940s. If you read Business Week, uh, other journals, they understood that we're going to have to have some kind of counter-cyclic spending, and they concluded that it could be social spending could be military spending, they'd both work. But the social spending has a downside. And it's pretty much what Vijay just described. They didn't use the word socialism. They said democracy. They said public spending, people care about. If you're going to build a mass transportation system, people have opinions, should be here, not there. If you say, I'm building jet planes, nobody has an opinion. Uh, Of course, the military experts do it. So we want to do the kind of spending in which the public is out of it. The public doesn't participate. They just listen. That, in fact, is liberal democratic theory. Public are spectators. They don't participate. So you don't want to have the kinds of policies in which people will automatically participate become active politically, become agents, uh, want to determine what's done and so on. That's completely wrong. People are supposed to be in the workplace following orders and push a button every once in a while. It's called an election, but nothing else. So therefore, the military, they said, is a much better option. Now, military, remember, doesn't just mean military. It's not just Lockheed. It's also General Motors, General Electric. In fact, a large part of the industrial system is involved in military production. So there's profit across the board. And nobody's asking about it because it's all for defense against some horrible monster who's about to destroy us. And so this has to go side by side with concocting enormous monsters ready to destroy us tomorrow. But uh, it does fit together as a reasonable ruling class strategy. So the last chapter of the book is about U.S. fragility um, or the fragility of U.S. power. What is causing U.S. power to decline? What is causing it its fragility? And do you see the godfather figure losing some of its might? Well, my own feeling is 
The fragility is mostly from within. We've constructed a dysfunctional society. It's tearing itself to shreds. Uh, no country is capitalist. A capitalist society would destroy itself in five minutes. So all the economies around the world are one or another variety of state capitalist. The last 40 years, we have been under a form of state capitalism, which is unusually savage and rapacious. State power is used for the benefit of the super rich and the corporate sector. Uh, Reagan took off with Reagan. Clinton continued it, uh, went wild with Trump, but it's been essentially bipartisan. And it's had effects. It's been a very effective class war. Just to give one measure, uh, Rand Corporation did a study last year, I'm sure you've seen it, of the transfer of wealth from the general population to the top 1%. Their estimate is about $50 trillion in the last 40 years. And it's a very effective highway robbery. And it's also been accompanied by deterioration of the social order. Things like schools, infrastructure, post office, uh, whatever you turn to. Let's just destroy everything for the benefit of the super rich and the corporations. Now, there's plenty of state intervention involved. This is not markets. Now, the World Trade Organization, for example, Clinton era, it's called a free trade agreements, highly protectionist. Uh, massive protection for major corporations, uh, what are called intellectual property rights, which never existed in the past. Massive patent protection so that drug companies can charge you 10 times as much as is needed for a drug. And then the pressure of the wealthy on Congress keeps it from being changed. We're seeing that right in front of our eyes right now. Uh, so it's a very effective form of control of the state to intervene massively for the benefit of the rich, the ultra-rich corporate sector. Everyone else suffers. Public society collapses. I think that's a large part of the fragility of the country. It's a way of destroying a country so the rich can survive. When we talk about the American economy, declining. That's highly misleading. A U.S. corporation, if you look at GDP, per, uh, national accounts, GDP for the country, yes, it's declining. Uh, there's one very good political economist, Ken, uh, Sean Stars, who's done something else. He studied the amount of global wealth owned by U.S.-based multinationals. It's spectacular. It's probably about half of global wealth. So, uh, you know, Apple doesn't make computers that compete with Huawei, but they're still the trillion-dollar corporation. They're making plenty of money. They've worked on a program of globalization, which destroys the American working class, but stuffs their pockets with huge profits. Okay, so is that an? I mean, from one point of view, it's American decline, but depends what you call America. 
It's why America, you keep the corporate, I mean, the corporate sector, the guys who run the place, it's not declining. It's doing, it's doing very well for itself while smashing everyone else in the face. That's what's called class war. Yeah, I mean, there's a good reason why the word is fragility and not decline. There are some sectors, uh, because power is not just one, you know, along one vector. Power comes in different ways. Um, military power, there's no decline. The United States has the ability to smash any country. Now, people mistake um, the fact that the U.S. had to withdraw from Iraq and Afghanistan and couldn't perhaps attain uh, its stated war aims as a sign of military weakness. No, it's a sign of political weakness. Um, but they have enormous military power, the capacity to blow anybody up. I mean, they've been killing Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the leader of al-Qaeda, every few years. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, they have such great drone strike capacity that after having killed him, they go and strike him in heaven or hell or wherever he is. You know, they recently killed him again. So um, they have incredible pol- military power. The economic power is intact. I mean, it's it's in, it's fragile, but it still exists. And their power over economic institutions is there. The fact that the U.S. can continue to sanction Venezuela and, and Cuba, in the, as Noam said at the beginning, in the midst of this fire in Matanzas, um, the criminal blockade of Cuba is maintained because of power over economic institutions such as International Monetary Fund, the SWIFT system and so on. But there's a fragility. You know, the way in recent year, in the recent year, the way in which the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, has been talking to the United States is a sign of increasing confidence in a country like Mexico. Um, the fact that in um, in Colombia, of all countries, never had a left govern- government since 1810, that Gustavo Petro can come to power and give, you know, dear old Ted Cruz nightmare after nightmare. Uh, Ted Cruz is petrified by what's happening in South America, as he should be. Um, but you see, this new confidence, we're seeing the Indian government saying, look, we can't agree with you on Ukraine. Or we're seeing the majority of African states saying, look, we can't agree with you on Ukraine. All of this suggests that U.S. power is not exactly what it was. There is a kind of fragility. That's the reason why Blinken is on this Africa tour, you know, trying to strong arm people to come on side as it were. People are refusing, you know, they just don't want to. Well, that's why fragility is important. I I just think that there's too much conversation about the decline of the U.S. or the maintenance of U.S. power. It's a, it's too much. Uh, we, people speak with too much certainty. OK, and I believe that we are in slightly uncharted territory now. We're in an era not of certainty, but of contradictions. And I think when you're in an era of contradictions, it really behooves us to look carefully at different empirical moments rather than to have like, you know, the cookie cutter attitude towards world affairs. Uh, Got to look at this place and that place and try to understand, you know, what is this, the kind of space for maneuver? Uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has created space for maneuver. So he can say, I'm not coming to the summit of the Americas. You know, he's not a far left radical. You know, he is a Mexican nationalist. Yes, left of center and so on. 
So I feel like in this era of contradictions, one has to understand the United States quite precisely. Um, and I, that's the reason why I believe when Nancy Pelosi's plane flew into Taipei, that's the reason why I, I feel, and it's not just that the Chinese are reticent to act, because as Noam said, the day after she left, they locked down Taiwan. The reason the Chinese didn't act, they could easily have put up two jet planes and dogged her flight as it entered Taiwanese airspace, or they could have done even something more dramatic, something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, uh, placed an, you know five planes flying over Taipei Airport, very scary stuff. They didn't do that. And I think they have a pretty accurate read that the United States is fragile, but it's not in deep decline. Uh, we've got to understand things precisely in order to be able to act. You know, not you, you, you can understand things more precisely than you act, but you've got to have as near precision. Um, and I think the term fragile is far more accurate than the word decline. Great. I'm going to have to leave you. I have another interview coming up. <laughs> You're booked back to back. <laughs> Let me just say one last thing before we close up, if I may. Um, okay. Noam Chomsky is an incredible guy. And I want people to read this book because I asked Noam a question about how he keeps going, you know, despite the attacks and so on. Forget the rest of the book. Just get the book to read that answer because it's hilarious. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> Something about stubbornness. <laughs> but I guess that's... Yeah, go ahead. The attacks are a compliment. When the journals lie about you, the fame you, that shows you must be doing something right. So keep at it. Yeah, I guess you're not a thorn in anyone's side if you're not irritating them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Noam Chomsky. And thank you, Vijay Prashad. It was wonderful talking to you both. <laughs>